You're listening to a Monster Kid Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Clock Strikes Midnight, a podcast for discussion of weird, fun films and TV shows to watch late at night. I'm your host, Jay, and tonight I'm joined by my pal, Joe, to discuss 1987's Stanley Kubrick classic, Full Metal Jacket. So turn out the lights, draw the shades, cuddle up in your favorite blanket by the speaker, and listen for the 12 bells. Jay, thanks for having me on the show. I am psyched to have you here, man. In fact, this show, in large part, would not be we would not be having this discussion were it not for you. I think that's giving me way too much credit, but thank you. <laughs> so, for the audience, when I started uh, thinking more heavily about uh, podcasting, uh, podcasting strike uh, clock strikes midnight, I um, I actually talked to Joe. It was Joe was amongst the he's a friend of mine up here in michigan and we uh he was one of the first people i talked to because he has his own podcast or had or what's what's our current status my man i'm in between right now but i've been podcasting off and on since 2005 so that makes me og in this biz (laughs) big time like i don't even have five episodes (laughs) and you (laughs) and you have like coming up on 15 years no wait more than 15 years of experience what how did you start the whole notion that you could listen to some sort of audio show on your own time something that was time shifted just really grabbed me because i mean and this is very commonplace now now it's no big deal everybody goes to Netflix or Hulu or Prime, and they watch things when they want to watch them. But remember, back in 2005, we didn't have those options, really, unless we wanted to record something. So the notion that I could listen to a show about something I'm actually interested in, well, that that really sort of tickled my fancy. Yeah, I, I, re- I like it. I remember when I first heard the word podcast as well, and I thought it was some strange way to listen to recorded uh, radio programs, which sounded counterintuitive because you'd be like, well, radio is supposed to be live, right? So why would I listen to the recording? And then I, uh, and then this show was born of um, basically of, of finding out more and finding shows that I, interest, that I was interested in listening to and then getting advice from folks like you on what to invest in, uh, getting get an audio interface for your computer whether to record on the computer or on a recording device, the type of microphone you might use. I mean, these are, these are not inconsequential questions. Podcasting is a conspiracy to sell gear. I (laughs) have some friends who are attorneys who said that law school was a conspiracy to sell case books. Um, Being, (laughs) being a podcaster is an excuse to go out and buy gear and it's fun. I've, 
um, been um, subject to that particular illness more than one more than one occasion. Well, and and to be fair to you, you were very cool with me. You were like, okay, look, here's high end, here's you know bare bones, and here's sort of an intermediate option. And like pretty much to the letter, I took the intermediate option of all the equipment uh, choices. So, so yeah. So, folks, part of what you're hearing tonight is is due to Joe's uh, excellent excellent leadership, uh, yeah, which brings yeah, me you're, around. You're you're overplaying yeah. this, Jay, because the, <laughs> I think my sound quality isn't going to be that great tonight. But okay. Well, I bet you anything, your sound quality is better than mine, and and there's a bunch of reasons as to why that would be. But, um, in any event, uh. So tonight we're going to discuss Full Metal Jacket. Uh, IMDb summary says, A pragmatic U.S. Marine observes the dehumanizing effects of the Vietnam War on his fellow recruits from their brutal boot camp training uh, to the bloody street fighting in Hue. And, uh, you know, like all the other IMDb summaries, that doesn't really do it justice, but... um, but you suggested this show, knowing or this uh, movie, knowing the kind of show that I'm doing tonight, and I'm wondering how you first became aware of the movie, and um, and first maybe for the first time you watched it. Can you bring that to us? Well, I've always been a very big fan of Stanley Kubrick. Uh, I think he's one of the best directors in our lifetime. I I, I truly believe that. Uh, I, some of his films are just spectacular and they go back a long time i mean i think yeah. of one of his first films would be um, paths of glory which is probably one of the most poignant anti-war films you're ever going to watch um and then lolita and my personal favorite would be dr strangelove uh and you know you can go into a clockwork orange uh, 2001 uh, uh the shining uh but other than uh you know other than dr strangelove this is the film that's always stood out for me so i saw this in the theaters when it first came out in uh 1987 and i really was hooked nice i was working with somebody who was a marine in vietnam and he told me after a weekend i you know we were discussing the film and he said it was very bothersome to him because it was almost um and and he and he his marine his boot camp was on paris island yeah and wow. he he said this was a, a very very close representation of what he went through when he was um uh, in marine boot camp you know prior to going to vietnam sure yeah, I got that sense as well that it was uh that it was very realistic uh the 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 boot camp training um and it I mean we'll get to it but but part of what made it so realistic was having an actual uh, drill sergeant cast as the gunnery sergeant um in in the film uh getting ahead of myself I guess a little bit. I I remember watching this when it came out too, Joe. Um that's really cool. Uh, that you had the friend who was who had who had you know who had served and 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 in the military and and gave you feedback from his perspective. Um, I I'll admit it when I saw it I had um, extraordinarily high hopes for the film. Given all the things you said about Kubrick, I um, I feel as well. Um, he's definitely up there amongst the echelons uh, of uh, 
of of great American and and world directors, really film directors in general. I uh, you had initially brought me Doctor Strangelove to discuss, and I didn't feel up to it because that is a flat out masterpiece, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, and I sort of felt like that one I'd have to sit down and study a little bit more. But this one I had a greater recollection of actually seeing. And admittedly, when I saw it, man, for the first time, I was, I thought it was very good. I enjoyed it. I was, I was strangely let down because I had seen two other films prior, actually three. And unfortunately, it's sort of in my book, it kind of suffered by comparison a little bit. Um, and those things will come up as we keep talking. One of the cool things about it, though, was watching it. Uh, in review for discussion with you was I came to appreciate it way more than I ever did before. Um, this is a masterpiece in its own right. Not, nobody's going to tell me any different. And um, and it sort of deserves its own place amongst uh, the, the the better epic war films that have been that have been produced really of of, of all time. So with that in mind, I was wondering if. Uh, if there's anything that would sort of stand out to you as things like what, what are the things that you, where do you even start? Right. What, what are some things that you really, really love about the film? Really like what attracts you about it? Well, Jay, you and I are both, um, amateur actors, uh, you know, on stage. And that's one of the first things that attracts me about full metal jacket is that it's, essentially like a two-act play essentially it is a two-act play (laughs) yeah uh the the first act opens in um and with uh with all of the recruits sitting in a barber chair having their hair cut off um and then it goes into the uh, opening scene of with with the drill sergeant we will get to him in just a second sure, but yeah. the the entire first act is based on uh, in paris island which is one of the um uh in in south carolina which is still in use today where yeah. where marines go to train to be marines uh and you know, people who are familiar with the military and what they do in boot camp is, uh, you know, particular um, uh, Americans come in as fierce individualists, and the military can't use that. Um, so, it and typically recruits are broken down and then built back up in the image of what the Marine Corps in this case want wants you to be. Sure. Um, and I think that the film does an excellent job of depicting that tearing down and I, I, I don't really want to use the term dehumanizing because it's really not what the objective is. It's basically, it just wants you to think more with the team than, than for yourself. And, um, the film, that's the soft, that's the, that's the, that's the softer way to say it. I think dehumanizing isn't isn't too strong a word, but only because it's difficult subject matter, right? You have to become this this. So the first act that you're referring to is in the film is uh, a bunch of recruits 
uh, meeting at boot camp after having their head shaved, like you said. And that's my first favorite thing about the film really was just two words, Lee Ermey. Well, he, uh, he starts the film and he's an accidental actor, by the way, he wasn't supposed yeah. to be in this show. Yeah, he was in, I know he was in apocalypse now as a, uh, he, he showed up on film, I think as a chopper pilot and he was an analyst, I think mm-hmm. for apocalypse now. And then. I think he he re- somehow he was going to be a, a technical an advisor, for, an advisor, yeah, for yeah. this one as well, and and then just asked uh, Kubrick, right? It, that's Can that's I audition. That's correct. He he had been a Marine drill instructor during Vietnam, and uh, he was there as a technical advisor. But he had acted previously, and he asked if he could audition. He had, uh, Kubrick had already cast somebody else, whom he allowed to be in the film later on when they were in Vietnam, sort of as a consolation prize. But, uh, that was a good role too. the, that cameo. It's not really a cameo. It's like a short, it's a short, um, yeah. The, the, of the helicopter, the, um, the, the, yeah. the gunship gunner. Yeah. Uh, but it, he asked to audition. He did it. And Kubrick was struck by just how brilliant his performance was. And he did something that Kubrick almost never allowed in a film. He allowed him to ad lib. Yeah. Because a lot. He, yeah. He ad libbed a lot. I, I think Kubrick <laughs> thought that about 50% of what came out of, um, of Ermi's mouth was actually ad libs. It was his, particularly the insults. He said he couldn't yeah. write the, in, the, the insults couldn't be written as well as they were just coming out of his mouth. And, you know, if, as you watch the film, some of those insults are are spectacular. I just they're they, very they funny. They're creative. They're 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 they're. I mean, the most insult, the, the most creative insults I've ever heard. They're they, they almost you almost have to sit with your jaw dropped uh, at the nonstop barrage of these insults. Um, and those were some of my favorite things about the film too. Um, and he also has some some lines that are classics now, but at the time, and these aren't necessarily the the cursing and the and the um, there's a lot of homophobia and racist jokes and I mean not really jokes, just statements that this gunny sergeant makes to sort of make everybody you know mix everybody into the cadet soup, if you will. But he says you can give your heart to Jesus, but your ass belongs to the core. That's right, which kind of sums up his training. And he also says, uh, when somebody does well, he says, you are born again hard, which again, sort of is good testament to exactly what he's trying to do with these folks. And then later on, he says something really interesting or really relatively early on. He says them very directly. He says, the more you hate me, the more you will learn, which I thought was, was really poignant. And I struggled back and forth with wondering if this was abuse or if this was exactly what soldiers need to be trained. Um, and it probably is a little bit of both, uh, hard to say, um, from experience because I've never been a soldier. I don't know if you served. Nope, I did um, not, but I, I understand what, what they're doing in boot camp. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is why it's young guys who, you know, well, women also, but mostly, you know, particularly then it was all young guys. And, um, 
it was important that it, you know when when they were in battle that they were able to react properly and quickly or they were going to be dead or at yeah. at, at best extremely ineffective and mm-hmm. the marine corps wanted neither of those things so it's really it's a matter of tearing you down and then building you back up and um what's interesting i mean if you were just from the beginning shot you know, after the haircut is the tracking shot in the barracks where yeah. it's shot in the typical Kubrick, you know, slightly subordinate camera angle, and it just tracks as the as the as the um, as the recruits are standing at attention, and he's going around giving his monologue. Uh, and what's also interesting is in the first act of this movie, there's only two people who their actual names or their characters' names come out. And that's Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, which is Ermy's mm-hmm. character. Yeah. And it's Leonard Lawrence who becomes the object of all of his scorn, derision, and abuse. Yeah. Um sure and, thing. and he goes around during this time and he renames several of the characters based upon uh you know Matthew Modine, who is ostensibly the star of of this show. Uh yeah makes a John Wayne reference and he comes over and wants to know who just signed his own death warrant. Um, and, uh, and then he said, huh, you know, you're, so you're a comedian. And then he got his name as a Marine, you're private Joker. Uh, and then, um, you know, the next one that comes over and it says, where are you from? I'm from Texas. And he's like, Oh no, you're, your um private cowboy yeah but um yeah he says like i remember one of the derogatory things he said and he just screams this in their faces he's like texas only steers and queers come from texas and he's yelling his head off at him before he like you said names him cowboy you don't much look like like the the most tame thing i think that he said that whole scene so Yeah. Well, he he goes and says how there's no racial bigotry and like list all of these um, uh, uh, ethnic slurs and you know that there's no discrimination and he says here you are all equally worthless. Uh, yeah, that's true. You're right. And um, he names the black soldier Snowball, presumably because snowballs are white. I thought right, and because he thought he was like a little kind of a little wimp. Uh, sort of a wimpy name, but, if you will. But I don't know. But then he gets to um, Leonard Lawrence, and that is another genius performance by our um, one of the one of the oh, just a great actor over all these decades. Yeah, um, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, um, he's outstanding. I agree with you. He he and. In my opinion, he and Ermy give the best performances in the whole film, uh, followed up closely by Adam Baldwin. But we'll we can talk about that. Oh yeah, later he is. Well. Yeah, he's in Act Two, but his yeah. his performance is brilliant. Uh, and there's other great actors in the film, like Matthew Modine is no slouch. Arliss Howard, fantastic. Uh, Tim Colseri was the door gunner that that you were talking about who was going to. He was an actual Marine, and he was going to play Hartman. Uh, Hartman uh, before. Lee Ermey gave his um, audition tape 
to Kubrick. Well, I mean, th- think about it. This movie would not be what what we consider it today without um, without Ermy's performance. No, no, it would not. In fact, he was the sole uh, acting award nominee at the Golden Globes from the film. He took an interesting film, an interesting prim- premise, and and churned out an iconic performance. He did, and even beyond iconic, I. Presume part of part of it, as I'm sure, is because he is in his skill as an actor, but also because he actually brought his own experience from Vietnam to the role. I believed from the minute he opened his mouth, and I think this was the point, uh, barking loudly and aggressively at these soldiers in training, that he was the real deal. I he didn't have to convince me. It took me ten seconds of hearing him speak. To believe that he was real. Well, and clearly he was real and it's just, it's just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, And the first act is really the struggle between uh, his character and uh, that of Leonard Lawrence, who he names as Gomer Pyle. Yeah. Yeah. And this is... Private Pyle is is just he's really an inadequate person. And he's not up to this. Uh but yeah, Har- Hartman wants to make him his special project. Yeah. He for those uh, who haven't seen the film, I guess it's a little late to say we're we 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 run deep into spoilers on this show, so <laughs> sorry for should have told you that up front. And we're only in the first five minutes. <laughs> exactly. So just stop it now and rewind, go watch it. It's definitely worth the watch, but yeah, he's how, how would you describe him? He's, he's, uh, he's overweight. And, uh, and he, by the way, um, the actor had to put on 75 pounds for this role. Yeah. I read that and was astonished. And then, uh, it, it seems like then the, the actors continue to become bigger as time has gone by, interestingly, so I wonder if this is something that he never came back from. I know some actors can yo-yo, like uh, like Christian Bale can go to weighing, you know, 140 pounds to being, you know, Batman, yeah. probably a top in 200 in muscle. But uh, yeah, so he's pudgy, he's overweight, um, he's tall, he's kind of goofy, he's a slack-jawed, and they make him out to be relatively mentally simple. Right. Uh, he's certainly not an engineer or heavy thinker certainly not a heavy reader in fact during the first scene uh the the uh, gunnery sergeant hartman is screaming at him and he can't quite uh he he's wiped the grin off his face yeah yeah he can't stop kind of smiling because i i don't think he understands exactly what's happening until the gunner sergeant explains it to him physically with a big wallop in the gut and he sort of doubles over and realizes oh Oh, this well, is where we are. And then he yeah. chokes him. Yeah. Yeah. With his own hand where with his own, by, by his no, own he, it, it, it's, um, he had to, he said, you know, choke yourself. And he, and he, he went, he went to choke himself with his own hands. He said, not your hands, my hand. Then he goes to grab his hand and it says, don't grab my hand, lean in and choke yourself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. but I think he, I think he's the first question he asked him is, 
did your parents have any children that lived? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's the cleanest form of insult he, that he could tell. And, uh, and it really hit home. I don't think Gomer got it, but boy, everybody else did. I know the audience did. And, um, yeah. So, so for me, uh, Lee or me, and and definitely Vincent D'Onofrio are kind of like the two things that stand out as something that two things I really really like about the film. Oh, I the, the the whole first act is just it's it's basically shows and 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 the thing is is that uh, again this this is a this is a the the book was um, written by. Um, an individual name um, that this was based on. The book is called The Short Timers, and mm-hmm. it was um, written by uh, Gustav Hoss- um, Hosford. And the character of Joker is him. He, yeah. and so Joker is supposed to be the, the central point of all this, but the, 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 the film and if you read the book, The Short Timers, which I recommend, it's a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. Um, Joker is certainly the central um, point of the book, the central character. Not so in the movie. Kubrick used those performances, and it definitely took away that um, Joker becomes more of the of the observer of this. He's more of the narrator. Yeah. Yeah. He's sort of the center point of of these other characters that are both expanding and contracting, as we, as we'll discuss um, as the as the movie goes on. Uh, another thing I really liked about the play was the cinematography. Uh, Douglas uh, Milsom did the cinematography, and it was shot. Correct me if you found out differently. Pretty much exclusively in the UK. Entirely in the UK. Yeah. So um, Paris Island, North, uh, you know, South Carolina is the uk uh uh vietnam uh <laughs> yeah you know da nang um way yeah. all of it all of it was shot in um in in england well it's crazy because the apparently that they built some of these sets, so th- this is both one of the things i liked most and one of the things i liked least about the film was the it has sort of this surreal uh film set like quality or almost like a like a um like like a film like a stage set uh and it's i think it was done on purpose to set it to build uh a a vietnam say on the isle of dogs in london with uh shipped in spanish palm trees and uh undergrowth uh that they purposefully grew for the film and brought it in from hong kong uh, tanks, planes, that kind of thing. But y- y- it always feels sort of strangely uncomfortable and unfamiliar. Uh, unlike, ironically, films like Apocalypse Now that shot on location, I think it was in the Philippines. Philippines, yeah. And made you, literally dropped you, I felt like dropped you that you in, into a place that you felt there was, you're definitely in Southeast Asia, there's no other place you could be. I felt like the sets built by Kubrick for Full Metal Jacket were astonishingly they were they were both specific in their uh in in what he set up and how he set them up but very vague in terms of 
where were you exactly in the country and where was the battle occurring and so forth. The names were set, but the set itself seemed somehow ghostly vague to me. I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? you? And, you know, we're skipping ahead to the second act, but you, you look there at the, at the, at the Marine base in Da Nang. You there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that, the, 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 the gate of that base is what it looked like. I, yeah. I mean, they, they, they copied that quite well. And, but I mean, you know, they didn't really go much outside of the Marine Corps base. Um, yeah. I, and I mean, if you look at some pictures of, of the city where they were fighting in, it's just, it, it looks, I think the reason that they picked this old abandoned, like factory or foundry site in England is that it, they could, they could basically put set dressing on there to make it look like it really was there. And, by, and by the way, doing this is a lot cheaper than moving everybody halfway across the world to the Philippines <laughs> yeah, for, true. for months on end, uh, and uh, you know that the uh, apocalypse now is <laughs> that's a it's a whole different topic. I mean, you know that yeah. Kubrick was was definitely making you believe you were there, and you know wasn't hanging actual human corpses off the trees as was done in <laughs> Apocalypse Now. Uh, yeah, yeah, whole different uh, whole different discussion. I'm with you. Forgive the um, the technical difficulty. Uh, Joe can't see me. My camera's cut out, but we'll, we'll keep going. The show must go on. Um, so that, yeah, that was another thing that I really enjoyed was the cinematography. Um, and then the final thing that I listed as things that really attracted me about this film was, man, the acting of Dorian Harewood. Now he played um, in this uh, particular uh, movie. Um, what, eight ball he played eight ball. Yeah. Was a second act uh, soldier. But there's something about this guy. He's so much presence. And every time he's in a scene, he steals it. And I remember seeing in movies like Looker and The Falcon and the Snowman and Against All Odds and Pacific Heights and Assault on Precinct 13. And he's one of those funny actors. I I always gravitate towards the character actors because he's one of those actors you see him and like, oh, the scene's about to get a lot real good. (laughs) It it, Excellent. It's it's really, it's an ensemble cast and and just everybody was cast very well. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think that Vincent um, D'Onofrio was supposed to be Gomer Pyle in the beginning. It, it, Matthew Modine was a friend of his and suggested that he'd be better for the role. And oh Kubrick and Kubrick said, yeah, okay. Yeah. And it was, he was sent a videotape. Of, and, of D'Onofrio? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it turned out during the scene that, I mean, both D'Onofrio and Modine were good friends, but during the movie, they really went at each other because oh, yeah? apparently they came from different acting schools. So their methods were different and it, it caused some conflict, which is good actually, because their characters yeah. are supposed to have conflict. Yeah. That's interesting, man. I'll tell you why. I, I mean, they both they both do a fantastic job. Uh, you know, it's Modine is he's kind of hit or miss for me, but mostly hit. I I do know that they consider other actors for for instance, this one continues to blow me away. 
They wanted um, Anthony Michael Hall. <laughs> Kubrick specifically wanted Anthony Michael Hall and courted him for months, apparently, and for some reason couldn't quite. Well, they, <laughs> Bruce, quite him Bruce Willis was also under consideration for that part. And, Bruce Willis was considered. Uh, and Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer, yeah. I read that as well. Uh, who who would have done a good job as well, I think. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. They're both such sort of deep, uh, deep dive committed actors. I'd be curious to know, you know uh, what what styles were uh, were conflicting. You know, you know, it's one of those films where you just it 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 is what it is, and I just can't imagine it any other way. I, I mean, you know, can yeah. you imagine the actor they originally wanted for Casablanca in the role of Rick? which was <laughs> Ronald Reagan. <laughs> no, the yeah, short answer to that is I cannot. Yes. That's <laughs> I, I just can't see Ronald Reagan in that role. Yeah. At all. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Um, so, and, uh, and, and I, yeah. I'd, I'd have a hard time seeing any of those guys in this role. It, you know, Modine has at this point just become, totally cemented as as yeah. as joker for me as joker yeah don't get me wrong he did a great job um i love him and birdie as well uh those are probably my two biggest modine and and vision quest was i thought was excellent as well these are things that um that i think you know the he he's a good actor he was a good choice for the role i have no complaints overall um do you have a you want to go on to some, any favorite scenes? I'm sure there are a couple here. <laughs> well, I you know I think that one of the scenes that was interesting as you as we show the development of Joker. Um, and I I I love and this was made up as well. This was just an ad lib from Ermi, and it's it's fantastic. He tells um, Cowboy and Joker. You know, I want you to go in and clean the head, the 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 the, the bathroom. Um, yeah. He says at the I, marine barrack, yeah. And, yeah, the marine barrack. And he said, uh, you know, I want you guys to scrub that so clean that the Virgin Mary herself would be proud to go in there and take a dump. Um, and <laughs> but but then he then he says, you believe in the Virgin Mary, don't you? And the reply mm. was, sir, no, sir. And, you know, he, and then he becomes instantly hostile and smacks him, you know, just yeah. strikes him in the face and says, you best sound off that you um, believe in the, in the Virgin Mary. And he says, so sir, no, sir hits him again. Um, yeah. And he says, you know, um, the private believes that, um, if he reverses himself, the senior drill instructor will strike him harder. Yeah. And he looks at him and then calls private snowball and says, you know, who was the squad leader and said, you're fired. Private Joker is now the squad, the squad leader. He may be silly and ignorant, but he has guts and guts are enough. Yeah. So this shows yeah. sort of the development of Joker that, you know, he's moved ahead a little bit and up in the esteem of um of the drill sergeant because he was actually figuring out what he was doing, which the others yeah. apparently weren't. As the first act goes on, uh 
Hartman in in the jelly donut scene. <laughs> he he finds <laughs> That's out That's one of my favorite scenes by the way. That's one of the ones I have listed as my favorite scenes. He discovers favorite's maybe a strong word but yeah. well, there's a lot of good scenes in it. Oh. Um he he says that um you know I've tried to teach um private pile but I have failed. Um and then basically leaves it to the uh, platoon that they now have to motivate him. So anytime he, anytime Pyle screws up, yeah, there he's not going to punish Pyle any longer. He's punishing the rest of them, and that sets up a, an enormous change in the movie because yep. uh, at, they become put out with all of the punishment they're receiving for this. And they decide to have what they call a blanket party where while he was asleep in his, on his, on the rack, on the, on the upper bunk, um, four of the recruits take a blanket, put it over him, hold him down. And the rest of the platoon came with a bar of soap wrapped in a towel and just beat him with it. Yeah mercilessly on the belly and chest right and oh, it's it's awful it is awful. He's, uh, like his uh his cries beneath the towel he's being he's being um gagged. held down by the yeah gagged and held down by by uh two two of the other platoon members and uh you every time he's hit it just the agony of those screams is uh, is 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 uh, blood is blood curdling? Yeah, it, it's very uncomfortable. And what's even more uncomfortable is the betrayal of Joker. Yeah, because Joker hasn't hit him, but the um, cowboy looks at him and says, "Do it, do it," and then he starts beating on him, and with with um, Pyle looking right at him as he's doing it. Yeah, and. That's where Pyle does two things. He detaches remarkably as a human being. And he starts to shape up as a Marine recruit. Yeah. Ironically, the two, the two, two things, those, you're right. Those two things happen in, in, in succession, right? Rapid succession. He, there are long shots of him before the blanket party where he is beat mercilessly um, by the other recruits with the soap towels, like you said. By the way, after that, after Joker wails on him several times, and it's almost like he's getting his frustration out at the end. He hits him more three or four more times than he even needs to. Um, he uh, they release him, and they and the, the I think it was Cowboy who was holding holding him. Said now, just, just remember, a bad fat dream, boy, it's all, fat boy, it's all a dream. Yep, and they all go to sleep. And he's crying like a little boy, like reduced to tears, like a child. And he's just wailing. And they do show his bunkmate underneath him as Joker. And he just he just literally covers up his ears. He can't stand hearing the crying that he's that he's elicited from this from but, this uh, this kid, this hapless kid. But you're right; he kind of shapes up. But they do these funny long shots of him where the other he's he's definitely marching and he's. Uh, he's taking apart and putting together his rifle. He's firing, but he's not chanting with them. He's just sort of staring blankly ahead. 
the thousand mile stare. They even name it later in the film. Yeah. He's they say, all these he's, guys. And he's talking to his rifle. Yeah. And yep. because cowboy and Joker remark on this. Yeah. While they're cleaning the head, he might be a section eight. Right. And, and he really, he really, his affect changes throughout the rest of the film, uh, where he has a real disturbing psychotic look. Yeah. But that's brutal. Uh, and that's, that whole sequence is part of my favorite that of course leads up to another favorite scene. Uh, where is Lawrence's demise? Well, let, but let's 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 you wanna, let's yeah, one you more one there? more Ermy thing that I thought was <laughs> was was yeah, very sure. interesting. Two things actually. When he's giving rifle training, he asked he asked his um, his recruits, um, you know, does anyone know who Charles Whitman was? <laughs> And, you know, one person answers that he was the guy who shot up everybody from, um, at the, the tower of the university of Texas at Austin. Yeah. The bell tower. Yep. yep. And then they, he asked who was, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and, you know, they all knew that. And he said, and where did these two learn how to shoot like that? <laughs> and yeah. Joker comes up and says, in the Marines, in the Marines, <laughs> in the outstanding. Marine <laughs> so this is something yeah, that he was most bringing people. Up their, yeah, he was. And the, and Ermy was, well, the gunnery sergeant Hartman was bringing up the, their, their prowess. Right, right. Because they were able to get off so many shots at such a, such a long sniper distance. Well, Not so much uh, that they did these awful things, but these killers were trained in the Marines. Right. And, and, and while they were moving. Um, so yeah. yes, he was, he was pointing, it wasn't that these were two very disturbed guys who fundamentally changed people's lives. And, you know, I mean, and with Oswald changed the life, you know, the, the, the changed the history of the nation. Uh, no, it was just that these guys learned how to do that here and you're going to be just <laughs> as good as they are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and I remember, and, yeah. and, and it turns out that as he's doing the training, that pile is absolutely proficient with the rifle and going in the direction of those, uh, of those two gentlemen. Correct. Uh, kind of losing himself. Uh, yeah. it, he really is a section eight Joker was onto something. Section eight is, um, I don't know precisely, but it's, it's, psychiatric. it's a military term for yeah. Psychiatric unfit to serve or mentally unfit to serve. And, yeah. And then, you know, to, to get back to the whole point of the training, um, when you, you know, because J- J- Joker does voiceovers, you know, um, n- um, n- narration throughout the, um, throughout all of this, or at least in the first act. Um, and then not until the end of the end of the movie, does he do it again? But during the first act, he, you see all of the, all of the Marines, you know, going through this mud and just marching through. And it says that the, the drill instructors are happy to see that we are growing beyond their control. Yeah. The, the, the Marines <laughs> don't want robots. The Marines want killers. Yeah. That's a prescient line. Yep. And that actually, I'll bring that up uh, in a few minutes on, on my themes for this, uh, for this film. Uh, which are 
it, it it's it's hard to watch i'll just say it the dehumanization and the breakdown of these individuals to basically train them to work as a team to be cruel killers which is kind of what you need and uh, war. this brings up a whole bigger yeah brings up a whole bigger question about the nature of warfare and 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 and, and you know whether that the morality of war and 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 so forth but but yeah, and so and so when you look back on it, you think, my goodness, this training—it's it, in its own beautiful, insane way. It's completely appropriate if you're trying to make a team of killers yep. to, well, to to sort of feed upon their cruelty, and it shows you in Act Two why these things become necessary. Right, right, right. And but but that's the line that really sets off the end of Act Two. The the I mean, I'm sorry, of Act One, the climax yeah. of it. On the last night on the island, uh, Joker has Firewatch, so he's basically the guy who's awake to protect everyone while they sleep. And he goes into the head, and sitting on the toilet is um, Private Pyle loading a magazine with his rifle. Still so talking he, to it. Still talking to it <laughs> and putting... Um, and he says, what are you doing there? And And he just... He's putting the rounds in, and you know, this is the title of the movie. You know, he's like he's saying seven six two millimeter full metal jacket, which were the rounds for the M fourteen. Um, right. That's a. Uh, I I had to look it up because I'm not a. Um, obviously, I was non military. I have great respect for those who did, and sometimes movies like this make me even have more so seeing the things that they've gone through. Uh, it's insane, but um, but yeah, full metal jacket. I think is a soft core. Uh, surrounded by a hard metal alloy of, yes. a, of a bullet, yes, so that it can maximize its uh, penetration, uh, how far it can fire. Yeah, it 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 it's less likely to deform while it's um while it's spinning, so it becomes it's more accurate. Um, yeah. and also like has for more force. And, yeah, yeah. Okay, makes makes sense. Yeah, but they then he um back you know P- pile starts uh, giving off all these um you know, basically commands. And then he, he arms the weapon. And at that point, Hartman comes out of his, out of his, um, um, I don't know what you'd call it. His office, his his bunk, his bunk. Yeah. Why to know what's going on. And, um, and at this point, Pyle's totally psycho. Um, and he tells him, you know what I love Joe? Hmm. If I I have to, I just have to interject this one thing. When Hartman comes in, (laughs) He's he's wearing his boxers, a t-shirt, and, and he's his wearing hat. his t-shirt and his sergeant's hat. Yep, and I thought that was the greatest thing. Like he's not going to leave bed without that hat on. I thought that was great. It it, it was, <laughs> but um. So yeah, he joins in there and asks, "What the hell is going on here?" Well, uh, I guess well, um, what was he? The Rifleman's Creed. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gomer's pile is is uh, private it's, pile is screaming out the rifleman's creed and he clearly is unhinged he's looking at the camera with his with his uh, chin down straight through his eyebrows with with the with the classic kubrick um cinematography of like the of the subordinate angle which shows yeah. you know and it sort of emphasizes that evil um yeah he looks like a like an animal preparing to to wreak havoc Correct. Is what, what he looks like. Yeah. And he, 
you know, I mean, I mean, well, again, oh, there's no spoilers here. You know, he, he, <laughs> he, he shoots him. Yeah. And as he's right in the, uh, right to the, right to the right, to the, uh, to the right of the heart. Yep. Right in the chest. And then he has like this moment of realization, sits down on the toilet, puts the, um, puts the barrel of the rifle in his mouth and very graphically blows his brains out. And, you know, when I say that, there's no ambiguity about that whatsoever. No, and it's, uh, you're right. The, the special effects are pretty tremendous. And the, it, it's, it reminds me of that uh, Hannibal Lecter line, have you ever seen blood in the moonlight, Will? It appears quite black because it, there's, there's moonlight streaming in through the window of the barracks into the head. And the head's all white, of course. Uh, and, uh, he, when he shoots, uh, Sergeant Hartman, uh, the red appears like this huge starburst of red black on his chest and he falls over backwards. Mind you, Joker's watching all this, right? wondering what the hell, what the hell is he going to do? And then he, he turns the, um, the pile turns the weapon on Joker momentarily. And uh, he thinks he's going to get shot. Not quite sure. He just can't believe he's just saw the gunnery sergeant gun down. Right. And um, and, and then, then he, like and then said, and then there was a humanizing moment. Come on, Leonard. Um, go easy, bro. And he decides to spare him and take his own life. Yeah. Yeah. And does the same thing with a much wider splatter across the the bathroom wall. And again, it's sort of that red black on a white background with the blue moon streaming through. That's a it's a strange thing to say, but cinematographically, uh, cinematographically, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a beautiful shot. It's a really beautiful shot, and and so heartfelt because you feel for all of them, right? Uh, maybe not as much for the sergeant, but to be fair, by the end of the training, you see what he was trying to accomplish. Whether you agree with, you know, what he's training for or not, um, he, you know, Pyle never would have been able to. You know, well, put that gun together, let alone shoot somebody with it. And he was encouraging of Pyle when he saw Pyle start to succeed. Yeah. When he started to turn it around. Yeah. So it, it wasn't that he was just being particularly vindictive. He had a job to do, and that was his job. Um, mm-hmm. You you can argue about um, the methods, and the Marine Corps today doesn't allow a lot of the things that were depicted in the in this film. Uh, you can't, highly dramatized, yeah, highly dramatized. I'm sure. Well, it just I mean, things like striking the recruits is out now. Yeah, it wasn't out back then. So, you know, and that's the end of Act One. And yeah, and Act when one it, closes and. Yeah. And then the entre acta of the of the second act is Nancy Sinatra. Um, these boots are made for walking, with a <laughs> Vietnamese prostitute could, um, coming up to and back to where where you see it. you're in Vietnam and you see uh, Private Joker with his uh, as a as a reporter for Stars and Stripes. Yeah. Um, with, yeah before Hartman dies, he he's he's. They're giving assignments to the soldiers in the barracks. He can't believe that he that uh, Joker's been been assigned to uh, journalism to training. Be a journalist. Yeah. To, I think he said military journalism. He said, "You're a killer, not a writer." Yeah. What the hell are you, Mickey Spillane? <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Sir, no, sir. I wrote for my high school yearbook, <laughs> sir." <laughs> 
but um but i guess that qualifies him so and 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 you just this is where you start to see some like some of the antagonism that the vietnamese have for the americans in this scene and uh and vice versa right yep uh and then it go then uh, and he's with his photographer which is his his name is rafter man and that's explained in the book um and rafter man rafter man's not his uh not his real name no oh okay i thought it was like rafterman no 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 (laughs) rafter man is he he's because he was hanging from the rafters at something but uh okay but (laughs) that makes sense makes more sense but rafter man um was complaining that he wasn't out in the field. He wanted to, he wanted to actually get out, get out in the shit, as he said. And, and Joker's like, yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, that yeah. your first time you go out there, you get killed and your mom's going to come looking for me. No, it's a negative. Uh, and you see them at their assignment, um, their, their, their assignment meeting with their, with their Lieutenant who's giving out assignments and, Apparently, Ann Margaret's coming with the USO, and he's saying, you know, I don't want to make it too obvious, but, you know, get some very suggestive shots. <laughs> and, and and this is like one of my favorite references later on, because after the Tet Offensive and, you know, the Americans are attacked and it's just, it's, it's, it's horrible throughout the, you know, for, for all the military in Vietnam yeah. Uh he gives us so a rough ending. Yeah, yeah, he he gives all of he gives how bad it all is and even even Concrete yeah, or uh Concrete's going to say that the war is not winnable. And then Joker looks up and says, "Sir, does this mean Anne Margaret's not coming?" Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that is a great moment of uh of levity. Uh, uh what are some of your favorite scenes from the from the second act? Well, I I think that that, I like that scene because it just it just shows sort of how the the hypocrisy that was going on in Vietnam when he's giving he's giving style book questions, um, yeah, where you know he's reading something and it says um, search and destroy mission. And he says I I have a directive here um, now re- replace search and destroy with sweep and clear, and uh, <laughs> and um, Joker's <laughs> like that's good very catchy uh <laughs> yeah but um so anyways it's funny i always think of that part when he's uh at, at the uh at the stars and stripes office with the other um, military writers as kind of being like you said part of the entreact where they're kind of it's the breather if you will before they deploy well right well i mean but you see them in their bunks right you know listening to you know what is that song going to the chapel and going to get married that's playing in the background they're just like talking about a lot of nothing then they start hearing gunfire and artillery rounds and they come in and that's the start of the tet offensive which was a very big deal yeah and then you go into the next scene where they're back in the stars and stripes office and um you know that's and after Joker makes the the crack about Anne Margaret not coming, he, his lieutenant decides to put him into a combat situation to go cover that. You want to be you want to be this way? Okay, you go out. Yeah. And so he takes Rafter Man with him, 
against his against his will. Um, yeah, and sure. they get on the they 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 get on the Huey gunship, and you see the the door gunner who was supposed to be Hartman, and he's just shooting at yeah. whatever's moving down in the in the rice paddies. So strangely, this is one of my favorite scenes from the second act, where it's it's kind of a it's really randomly violent and it's insanity caught on film on their way to, to Fubai, which is where they're being deployed to on the front. And the chopper gunner's name is played by uh, Tim uh, Kosiri. Like you said, he was a, he's just randomly gunning down civilians and enjoying it. Um, and it's a really intense scene because it, it switches between him and Rafterman, who is nauseated, yeah, like Presu- presumably, yeah, from partly from the chopper ride and partly from the humanity, the inhumanity of this, this, uh, the, the gunner, the the chopper gunner, just shooting people down for no reason that he can that that we know yet. And then Joker, Joker's just looking like he's just wearily resigned. He's like, oh well, well he's been he's, there, he's been there before. Okay. There's more of the same, but you know, he's over it. He's not sick. He's not angry. He's kind of nothing. He's just kind of detached. So, um, and he stops, right? The gunnery sergeant stops and he looks at them both and he says, anyone who runs, this is his explanation. It's a VC. All these, uh, anyone who runs is a VC and anyone who stands still is a well-disciplined VC. Yep. So that's his excuse to shoot anything they come across when they're flying over enemy territory, uh, which I thought was just, Oh, uh, it, it's, it's heartbreakingly, uh, brutal, <laughs> truly brutal. Well, cause they show these poor people like, like women with running kids and old people and everybody just basically trying to work these, I think they're rice fields, uh, and running for their lives because they're being shot down by this gunner, uh, this, this, uh, chopper gunner. Rough. It's a rough scene. It's a rough watch. It is. Well, they it's supposed to be a rough watch. Yeah. It, it that they land and um, they're working their way over to the um, city of Way, which is um, and this is something that's different from how Vietnam films are usually depicted. Usually, it's combat in the jungle. And this mm-hmm, is not true. this that this is not that at all. It's the opposite of it. It's urban warfare. Yeah, urban, truly. And so, you know, if you want to think of Apocalypse Now or uh, you know Hamburger Hill or any of these other Vietnam films, just you know, let go of that because this is entirely different. That's a really good point, Platoon. Uh, deer hunter the, the, these films happen mostly in the jungle and or on the coast and away from from big towns and this this uh, this uh Fubai is definitely a big town where they're fighting or rather way way is a big town yeah and they're um so it they they find a a ditch where a bunch of people have been shot by the um by the um north vietnamese army mm-hmm. and and this is like this is this is a favorite scene too, where where the where a marine colonel comes over and says, um, "What's the point of having a peace symbol on your armor and um, born to kill written on your um, 
on your um, on your helmet? And his reply was, I was suggesting the the um, the the Jungian thing, the duality of man, which completely confuses the colonel. And then his reply was, <laughs> What side are you on, son? <laughs> It does. The colonel is not ready for that, but yeah. he's polite. He, he he's polite in his response. I mean, the way you're supposed to be. He says, "I think it implies something about the Jungian duality of man, sir." And, <laughs> and he says, "Son, I've asked Son. nothing more of my Marines, and they obey my word as they would the word of God." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the and the, it's crazy because this is all happening in front of this, like you said, this ditch of like dead bodies. Right. It's the it's surreal. It's this peculiar sort of it almost feels taken out of context that two people would be having a conversation, but it's taken for granted that this is you know it's wartime. This is just normal. This is our normal setting. So they get into way and he finds out that the hotel company um is there and he knows that one of his one of his friends from Paris Island, Cowboy is in that. So he finds him and has a great, warm, very warm reunion with him. And you have all the Marines that have just gone through combat all day sitting around. And and the um, Kubrick picked the, the music background for this scene, and it's just brilliant, of Wooly Bully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're taking photos with dead Viet Cong uh, corpses and... Yeah. I, they're just entertaining themselves in ways that are kind of hard to fathom. They, these are uh, great days. We're living bros. We're jolly green giants walking the earth with guns. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and this is where you meet eight ball and animal mother. Yeah. Animal mother is played by Adam Baldwin and in one of his, one of his best roles to date. I know him from two things stand out. One is the, the, the 19, I think it was the 1980 film, my bodyguard where he played sort of a recluse right. who befriends a, a lonely little kid, a uh, lonely teen kid. And then I also know him from The Patriot, uh, the Mel Gibson um, right. film, The Patriot, where he played an American Tory. And and you know uh, who was supposed to have that role initially? Was uh, in, offered? In, in, in The Patriot? No, 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 no. The Animal Mother. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no, please do tell. I, I, I think I know, but, but say it anyway. The former governor of the state of California... <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. That would have ruined that part. That. Yeah. that would have ruined that part. I couldn't agree. I could not agree more. Yeah, this this the part requires like a, not only a lout, but like a mean, large son of a bitch. And frankly, I don't know if you drew this uh, drew this corollary, but I thought Animal Mother is what Pyle would have become had he lived and served and not become a section eight. I don't know that I've ever considered that I have considered that, um, that animal mother is what the drill sergeants ultimately wanted from all of them. It's the, you know, the Marines didn't want robots. They wanted killers. Well, this was the killing machine. He's cruel. Uh, he is coarse and, loves to basically loves <laughs> loves to inflict pain and and yet you know it's like with with um with with eight ball he 
he says this like blatantly racist things, but you also see that they're very good friends. Yeah, they're buddies. Absolutely. Well, and you get the, the what that does is it plays off the idea of the subtext that these that these guys have been through the thick of it. This right. group has been, you know, they're 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 teasing each other mercilessly and probably inappropriately to <laughs> well, when we, and, how you and, would treat a school chum. But not necessarily a fellow soldier. Well, when Eight Ball's sitting next to him and he says, "Hey, thank God for the sickle cell, huh?" and he's like, "Yeah, mother." <laughs> God, um, oh my God. Yeah, I, yeah. It, I mean, and it goes all throughout that. But yeah, then you see them on, you see them on patrol, and um, the lieutenant and one of the sergeants get killed, and this is like one of these great scenes where it's from the point of view of the bodies laying out on these mats and the, and the camera shooting up, going around, a um, like around everyone who's encircled around the bodies and saw this, uh, echo echoed later in saving private Ryan. Yes. Uh, similar kind of shots of, uh, of a wounded soldier or killed soldier being purposely targeted and left alive so that more soldiers would go to help and a sniper would take them down. And that's exactly what happens. And it's, it's the, ins- you know, what struck me, Joe was the uh. insanity of this situation because they're okay. So they're they're I think his name was doc J yep. uh, goes after him, goes after um, uh, eight ball uh, after eight ball gets shot by the sniper. And of course he's taken down too. And, so Cowboy's left in charge, and he do, he doesn't really know what to do. Well, he but no, but he 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 does. He knows that he knows exactly what's going. On. He said that they're just trying to draw everybody out to shoot him. And right. Animal Mother's having no part of this. Well, that's what I'm saying is that Animal Mother's not. He's not obeying the command at that point, so right. he just runs free form, uh, over to where he thinks he can get a shot at the sniper, and. When they come up and see that, um, you know that where the sniper is, they they bring the squad up and they're going to go get the sniper. And the sniper, this is a this is you know big part of the movie, the closing of the movie basically. But um, the sniper, uh, you have cowboy standing in a hole in the building, and and the sniper shoots through the hole and kills him. And yeah, that that, that's a that's a hard. And a really well played death scene. Yes, you can see in Arliss Howard's, the actor who plays uh, Cowboy's part. You can see in his face the confusion of w- what a human being must, the thoughts and feelings and responses a human being must go to when they are when they realize that they actually are dying. Right. In short order. Right. Uh, it's horrifying and very real. And, and it's like you, you, you can see the eight stages of grief <laughs> within about 30 seconds and, and before and, he, le- before and, he out and his last, and his last words were, I can hack it. I can hack yeah. it. I can hack yep. it. Repeated like his, his, at the end, he's like, Nope, I'm not gonna, I can, I can total denial. I can, I can do this. I can hack it. I can hack it. Yeah. I can hack it. And then he just stops. And of course that, that riles up. Uh, Joker enough to go with with um, Animal Mother, who says you want to go get some payback, and yep. he finally says, "Yeah, let's go, let's go find the sniper." So they, yeah, you're they fresh out of friends. Um, so yeah. so they they make their way up, and they're up in the elevated position where where uh, where um, 
the sniper is and Joker clicks on his M16 but it jams. Yeah, so, so the, the fire on the sniper. Right. Yeah. And the sniper hears the click and turns around and it turns out the sniper is a is a young woman. And mm-hmm. she's going she's to try a teenage girl. Yeah. It looked like to me anyway. Right. Yeah. And they're and they're tr- and and she's going to kill him. And um he's trying to get his um his Colt 45 out of his, out of his holster. And it's just not happening. And then rafter man comes along and shoots her down and everybody comes up and, um, she's, she's dying, but she's not dead yet. And they're like wondering what they should do with her. And you know, the, they basically, it was like, leave her for the rats. And this is like one of the very interesting moments in the movie where Joker is showing his own humanity here that we can't leave her like this. Yeah. And so the only option that he has is to shoot her. And she actually requests that. Yeah. You know, she's, she's praying in Vietnamese, but then at the end, she sees, she's saying, shoot me, shoot me. And he screws up his face and shoots her. Yeah, I wrote it. I wrote down that this is uh, I wrote down the this phrase beautiful brutality because it's like a convergent. This is a this is a convergent moment of the film, right? So there's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre music playing in the background. <laughs> uh, she like you said, she's a female sniper. Young girl says shoot me four times in English with her Vietnamese accent. Uh, pleading and it's a convergence of what the compassionate person wants that's joker what really what the berserkers want like animal mother and and the other soldiers without thinking about humanity uh her humanity anyway and also frankly what she wants right she knows she's not going to walk away from that so it's like the enemy the compassionate and the warlike everybody all all want the same thing everybody in that that room had that was on the same page at that moment huh yeah horrifying uh it it, and it's like it and it's everybody wants it and it's insane and that kind of i don't know that sums up the end of the movie i think well no the end of the movie is where they're marching along the perfume river at night with the city burning behind them and then joker comes back narrating again and he and he says well, we're in a world of shit but he also says that he's short and by short it means he has very little time left before he can be um sent home and all of the marines are as they're marching they're singing in a marching cadence the theme from the mickey mouse fan club yeah yeah I remember that complete with the little uh, falsettos Mickey mouse. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's in the cadence of we work hard and we work and we, and we play fair, you know, just it's yeah. And, um, it's like, it's like a bunch of boys marching along. Right. And that's exactly it. Where we come back to the fact that despite everything you've seen here, these are still boys. What was and, the average age? It was 19, right? Right. 19 years old. Right. Average age. 
So, so left to their own devices, they may be killers, but you know, they, they haven't changed them entirely, which I think is actually sort of a poignant, um, moment right there. And in the Joe and Joker says specifically then says, um, and I am no longer afraid. Yeah. Like he's, he's finally, he's crossed over. I'm fear is no longer part of this equation. The original screenplay and the book has Joker getting killed and Matthew and Matthew Modine discussed this with Kubrick to have this changed said, no, no, no Joker should live so that he can live with the horror of what happened that day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an unbelievably intense scene. An intense movie. And and then <laughs> the credits come up with the Rolling Stones painted black playing painted <laughs> black. Dirt. Yep. I didn't know what I was look searching for meaning in that too. The only thing I could I could come away with was the lyric where they sing, I could not foresee this thing happening to you. Right. Uh, and that was sort of the only that was that seemed prescient to the to the whole war yeah. effort in Vietnam. Um, you know, Joe this is a, I, I appreciate this film even more. Um, I appreciate Kubrick even more uh, after having watched it and studied it for your visit today. Um, I also want to say before, as part of my, my final thoughts that I'd like to hear your final thoughts too. Um, I'm, I, I don't mean to come off as anti-war or anti-military. And I don't, I also don't want to come off as pro-war pro-military, but I do want to say that, Although dramatized, seeing realistic portrayals of not only the training that soldiers go through, but the the horrific circumstances that they're literally dropped into, I I I can do nothing but just uh, bow my head and take my hat off uh, to to people who have either been selected or 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 even like. Kind of mind-boggling to me, people who volunteer for that kind of work, because it's necessary work. And as as outraged as outraged and as outrageous as the training scenes are, I think by the end of this, part of my final thoughts are: it's 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 the purpose of the military to. They've even say, they say it outright, and we've been discussing it. It's their purpose to create killers to tap into their cruelty uh to defeat opposing armies yeah to, to, to defeat to, opposing to hostiles kill, to kill people and break things yeah i, I mean it, and uh as a team as a right. unit and and obviously that unit is tested and 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 the the brotherhood bonds of the soldiers is is very clear um and i i don't know i guess i'm still a little bit uh blown back in my chair uh not only by the film, but just by the whole concept of of what what soldiers went through in the Vietnam War and really any war to this point. Um, it's it's a very it's interesting perspective. This is you know as opposed to a lot of war films, there are very few officers in this. Right. This is from an enlisted man's perspective, including Hartman. He's not a he's a he's a non commissioned officer. Not a not sure a, enough. And, um, you know, really the only two officers in this whole thing, the, um, well, I think there's a third, but he's like in for a few seconds, but, um, 
the the um the CEO for Stars and Stripes and the Crazy Colonel. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And other than that, it's this is all about these guys. And yeah, and the grunts, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and you know this is where what you see what Hartman taught them paid off because they're going and doing this stuff without the direction of an officer. They, they just know what to do. Yeah. And, and in the end, uh, it's just an ironic twist that what a compassionate soldier does, um, what a detached soldier wants to do. And in, in final summary, what the enemy wants are all the same thing. Right. Just one of those brilliant twists. Great um, film. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing this to me, man. Like I said, I was going to do Dr. Strangelove, but I, w- I didn't feel up to it. Uh, I, if you'll come back, I promise. I, I promise. We I, I'd, I'd love to. I, it's, that's, that's <laughs> a, that, that film is far more of a, it's, it's like one of my favorite dark comedies. Yeah. No, I remember it that way. I also remember Peter Sellers' performance and being just kind of in awe of him and the multiple roles that he plays. Conversation for another time, I guess. Yep. Hey, what have you been up to for fun, man? Uh, not a heck of a lot. I'm considering not, starting not a the new... podcast so much. And no, anymore, I, I'm considering starting a new podcast, but I mean, there hasn't yeah. been um, there hasn't been a lot to do. I've um. <laughs> You know, I, I've been avoiding, um, crowds, uh, you know, going to work and, um, you know, but the, I guess the nice thing about the plague is I've like really caught up on my movie watching. So yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. Same. Uh, you know, you're, you're a very, um, knowledgeable guy about, uh, theater and film. And I was, I thought it was cool when we were talking sort of in prep for this episode that, you know, you're, you're, what would, well, let me just ask you, Joe, if you, if you could do anything, what would your, what would your dream job be? Oh yeah. I, I, yeah. Um, I've often said this, I mean, movie critic, uh, because yeah. I, I can't imagine how much fun it would be to get paid to sit in a dark room and watch these images flash, but you know, before my eyes didn't tell people what I think of it. <laughs> That's right. And get paid to do so. Right. 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 I mean, I, I can't think of anything better. Yeah, I, I have opinions on all sorts of stuff, but nobody pays me for them. <laughs> well, I uh, I think you'd be great at that. And I really thank you so much for your time, my friend, for coming to talk to me about this film in particular. Thank, uh, thank you, It was Jay. great to revisit it. And frankly, man, I you helped me reappreciate it. I always knew it was a good film. Uh, and like I said at the very beginning, I it, it just... At the time that I watched it, I, and then I let it go for many, many years, it just it suffered by comparison to some of the others. But like, like we've talked about, and like you mentioned at multiple points, this is its own piece of art. This is very different, and it comes at things from varied um, uh, po- positions that you might not think of as a filmmaker uh, when, when you take into account the, the, the making of those other movies. If, if I were going to pick... You know, it, if I was going to compare this to say Apocalypse Now, mm. I'd say Apocalypse Now is a better movie. But I don't really think of Apocalypse Now as a Vietnam movie as much as I do this one. 
I, I, there, there is so much more going on with apocalypse now. Yeah. And, and these struggles between good and evil and where the line blurs. Um, I don't know. That's there's just so much more. I mean, it, it, I, I view Vietnam sort of as a, as a backdrop to it all. It's not, it's not the central character. Yeah. Yeah. True enough, man. Yeah. That might be a whole, that could be a whole uh, episode in and of itself. Right. Comparing and contrasting the, the seventies and eighties and perhaps some nineties uh, epic war films. Yeah. I don't you know. know I, that was, that was quite I, an era. I really, <laughs> You, when you were saying what films do you want to watch, it's like I was trying to think of this, and I mean, yeah, I can get into some arty films, but these are the films I like. <laughs> Just, hey, man, it shows, and that's why I wanted to have you here to talk about it. So thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, and 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 for your recommending it. I I have a feeling that if if uh, if you'll accept the invitation, uh, that I'll have you back here uh, many many times, my friend. Accept it. Joy to talk to you. That's fun. All right, my man. Thank you for listening to Clock Strikes Midnight. For more information or to suggest topics, find me on Twitter at Finn313. The show's music was written by Kevin McLeod and can be found on Incompetech.com. Many thanks to my guests who give freely of their time, and thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>